Hello and welcome to another edition of the Deal Flow Show. I'm J.P. Maroney, your host, along with my co-host, Mr. Paul Nicolini, here from Harbor City Capital and the Deal Flow Show team. And we've got a great guest here today, Mr. Oscar Joffrey from Corkinex. And I'm excited because I've gotten a little bit of a hint behind the scenes of, about your company and what you do, and it's really on a topic that we've been excited to kind yeah. of dive into. We've talked about Reg A's, we've talked about private equity, we've talked about debt, we've talked about a lot of different uh, pieces of the capital stack, but we haven't spent a whole lot of time talking about crowdfunding, and we look forward to jumping into that and understanding a little bit more about your business and what you do. Why don't you take us back a little bit though, Oscar, and talk to us a little bit about how you got started in the capital markets. Great, and it's uh, great to be on your show today, JP and Paul. I'm really looking forward to this. Um, my my journey into this, like any entrepreneur, it's like hands-on. So I had the pleasure of working in the capital markets uh, since early 2000. I was right there, as you may recall, the day when Enron collapsed <laughs> and the headlines read, where were the directors, right? Um, it's It was astonishing back then that People were asking the questions, where were they? And the director was saying, where was the information? We didn't have access to it. So it was an interesting uh, dynamic. Uh, got to learn about the capital markets from one side. There are two sides of capital markets. There's the listed issuer world and obviously the private world. And we thought, you know, I spent about 10, 15 years there watching it, but nothing moved the needle. People still did the same old, same old, same old. Even though Franken-Dodd was around and governance was required, people felt like they had to do it. They didn't want to do it. And during that time, obviously, I learned a lot. Like any, anything you do, you learn, you see how things are done. And I had the pleasure of one of those odd occasions in your life where I got to meet David Weald. And, and it was just right at the perfect crossroads in my career as an entrepreneur and seeing that I really couldn't move the needle any further on the publicly listed side. And here's this man talking about democratizing capital in the United States. And it just changed my life completely because I now had the foundation on how it worked. And here was this opportunity to start right from scratch to fix it. And that was my entrance into the capital markets. It's been a journey that's 20, 30 years in the making. <laughs> what was the first thing that you worked on when you jumped in? So when I first got involved, uh, obviously, again, the message was, where were the directors? So the solution that we brought to the market was a boardroom product. How do we make board of directors accountable? How do we get them the tools, the information they needed? And it became a kind of a checks and balances kind of environment. It, it kind of took away the, the, the whole element of the board working together with the company. It just became, you know, did we get this? Did we get this? Did we get this? Did we get this? And though that was one set of board. And then the other board was, do we really need to do this? Like, you know, it's, um, so it was our first entrance into it. Um, and then from there, we started branching, expanding it further. But within the public world, uh, JP, there was really no more further expansion because nobody had an appetite to do it. You know what I mean? The motivation wasn't there on a positive way. Only a very small few companies, less than a hundred, that really understood why they were doing it for the greater good. The vast majority were doing it just so they could remain listed as a listed issuer. 
Okay. Um, what was your background before that, though? How did how did you migrate over from that with the with the public markets plays? Um, what were some of the things that you worked on before that? Obviously, it's still capital markets. Well, interesting enough, I did I didn't. I <laughs> it's like everything; it just happens. Uh, I started. Uh, I got into capital markets uh, not by stumbling into it, but you know, I had a previous private company called Babelfish, uh, the world's largest translation platform back in 1999, early 2000. And it became my first run-in with securities regulators. And I really didn't understand what that meant was at that time. And, you know, one thing led to another that, wow. So as my career was coming to an end uh, with Babelfish, meaning my, my, my startup with, that came from translation, all of a sudden I'm moving into the capital markets right from the beginning, just before the collapse of Enron, learning about corporate governance and compliance and adopting it using technology. So throughout my career as an entrepreneur, um, my vision has always been to empower. Even before Babelfish, uh, I brought out a product with voice recognition. So this is way going back to 1988, 1989, the early 90s, when we could actually speak to computers. And people go, well, we have that today. Yes, but then we didn't. And, you know, the, 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 the boards that would actually process uh, the, the actual language translation were about this big. Today, it's a little tiny little chip. Uh, so it just goes to show you the leaps we've done. So, but throughout my career as an entrepreneur, it's been creating solutions that empower. So in that case, I was empowering the medical industry, the legal industry. Uh, and then from there, you know, translation was another empowerment. The internet is coming on. Why shouldn't everybody in the world have access to it? Because in the early days, it was English only. And then as that, you know, as I finished with that particular company, another opportunity emerges as you start engaging in the capital market. It was just uh, one of those opportunities as an entrepreneur that just came at me and all of a sudden is, wow, this is a huge problem. There's an opportunity here. And again, we did well for a while, but it, it wasn't moving the needle the way we wanted to. And like everything else, you're not looking for it. It's not like David Wheel was out there looking for me or I'm looking for him. Here he is, I'm listening to him, and it just kind of just changed. I knew all those 10 years finally paid off, 10, 15 years <laughs> paid off in learning the capital markets. Wonderful. You mentioned Enron twice, and I know that was a big event. Was that start, was that a point of your empowerment that you wanted to get information to the people? Surely the shareholders at that point needed all the information they could get. Was that something that kind of got the wheels turning for you? It, it, it did. It did. I mean, it was sort of like, you know, going from a private company, typical entrepreneur, oh, my lawyer handles everything. It was rather a wake up when you know, as a, a small, uh, small company, you got to deal with regulators. And all of a sudden, something else is emerging, percolating up at the same time. That's when it just kind of lit up that, wow, there's this massive disconnect. I didn't realize how big it was. Enron was the wake up. So not only did you have the shareholders disconnected, but the very people that the shareholders voted in, they were disconnected. So you had kind of a... a you know, an, in, an industry that's completely being operated by insiders and everybody else was left on the out. And obviously the new rules, Frank and Dodd and other rules that have come out to bring a better governance, better transparency, 
you know, people used those words during the early 2003, 2004. You'll remember, everybody says we're going to be more transparent. Well, what does that really mean, right? And then as the more I got deep inside these public companies, I really got disappointed. It really, it, 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 it didn't make me jaded. It just, I was disappointed because here's was this one opportunity you had to not only demonstrate the kind of companies you are, and some of the bigger ones, they did do it. But the smaller ones, it was just give me the money, let me do my stuff, and you know I'll deal with shareholders as they come. And that was, for me, was that was it. I just couldn't, it, it just seemed like nothing was ever going to change. And it, it was rather interesting that when you tried in the early 2004 and 2005, people would say corporate governance, corporate governance, corporate governance, right? And the bigger players, you know, they, they did everything right. And the smaller listed issuers, which is 98% of them, for them, it was sort of like, ah, I just got to deal with it because if I don't, I'm going to get delisted. But you know what? Well, we'll just keep running it the same old way. And I, that for me was the final clincher. I just kind of said, hey. And, uh, and I knew that, you know, I, at the beginning, I didn't know how all that knowledge that I had, how the board of directors were, how the, what disclosures really mean, what does transparency really mean, how it would transform into the private side. But once I got in, it was the best education ever. I have no regrets about what happened, none whatsoever. It's just unfortunate it wasn't adopted in a positive manner that it should have been. You obviously had to pull together a team to create and build out and then ultimately sell. How did you identify the type of people that you were going to work with to create that first venture? So the, the interesting thing when I first got into capital markets, here I am, I'm coming from technology translation going into capital markets. I mean, it's not two apples, the same different colors. No, it's totally different. Um, like everything else that I do, you find a suitable advisors, team players that have vast more experience. One thing that I pride myself in, always finding smarter people than me to be part of the journey. Do they see the same thing I do? And in those days, we did. We found the best leaders, Peter Day, Stephen Jarolowski, the best names in corporate governance. So there was no shortage of them, right? There was no shortage of people writing articles on what the board should be, what the pink elephant means in a boardroom. So it, it was great to see that the right people were aware of it and they, they knew change needed to happen. It's just that it was unfortunate change was going to take a little bit longer. So, but I've adopted that model everywhere I've gone in my career as an entrepreneur is that I always surround myself. Even today, when you look at my company today, CoreConnects, you, you see the people that made the difference. And they're not just names. They're people that we actually include in our day-to-day -day business and operational side. So David Wheel, the father of the Jobs Act, the very person who created the crowdfunding and the Reg A's and the Reg D uh, general solicitation, this is the man. He is an advisor to our company. The man who created co-founder uh, of Frank and Dodd, Dr. Alan Mendelowitz, again, part of our advisory. So we surround ourselves with the smartest people to make sure that what we're trying to align and what empowerment we're trying to do isn't going offside with the very people who created the new regulations and legislation. So it, it, I think the success of any company today is you have to make those combinations happen so you're not 
derailing yourself from the path of bringing empowerment into something. A lot of deal making, obviously, is a sales process, right? So you're you're having to persuade people that your idea is worth pursuing, whether you're gathering a team or you're sitting across the table from someone that's going to be a strategic partner or you're selling the product. I've, I heard many years ago, and I really believe this, that it's a lot easier to sell fire extinguishers than it is insurance policies. And, um, you know, the when somebody has a problem, they're, you know, they're willing to pay for a solution, but you were identifying a problem in the marketplace and really going out and selling them a way to prevent a problem, you know, a way to prevent issues in their businesses. How did you get that message framed in a way that allowed you to be successful early on when you were really bringing something new to the market? You know, it's interesting. I was just in, in a presentation just before coming to you today, and I was asked the question of our journey when we started CoreConnects and when we launched it, because we've been at this now for over 10 years, but the platform has only been live for four. So why did we wait so long? Because it actually, people couldn't see the problem. Even though I knew the problem was coming, even though people like David Wheel and many others believed what we were saying and they were encouraging us. So you have to understand you need encouragement. You need investor dollars to be there for the long path. And what we kept saying was the time will happen when people will cringe and, and cringe, meaning, oh, my God, I actually have a thousand shareholders. No, wait a minute. Ten thousand. No, a hundred thousand. What am I going to do? It, you know, no matter what we kept telling them, what are you going to do? Here's a do. But no, no, you know, I got 10 shareholders today. It's, you know, so nobody can visualize that until it happens. And you can't even show them an example because they can't relate it to themselves. So we educated them in understanding what it would take. And so here is the one mistake that the industry, some uh, early entrants made. And that was when they entered the private markets, they entered it the same way the public market. And what does that model look like? I raised $5 million. I got 2,000 shareholders. They sit on my cap table, and there they are. I hire an investor relations person and just send them reports, monthly reports, and they'll be okay. And, you know, and once you start trading, you don't really know who owns your shares anymore. But in the private world, that's not the same. Your name, JP, Paul, you sit on the cap table. I see how many shares you own. I see what you're doing with my company. I see what news releases you're getting. So you're directly connected to me. I can't just report to you once a month and leave you alone. That's not why the investor invested in the journey of the company. So what has changed is that we've always been believers that shareholders in private companies are more than just shareholders. They become brand ambassadors to the company. They become the evangelists or the gladiators to go out and tell the whole world, hey, I just invested $100 in this company. I'm a shareholder. Right. I mean, look at me. I got 48 accredited investors in my company. I love them. They, I, I love them dearly because they believed in my dream a few years ago and they invested. I have nothing but praise for them. But if I could get any of them to go to LinkedIn <laughs> with, a, with, a, you know, with a social media image saying, I invested in Gorgonex, it'd be a miracle. 
but a, an investor who invested $100, $500, $1,000 is doing it over and over and over and over. Why? Because they fell in love with the journey and the vision of that entrepreneur. That is the, that is the thing that we were waiting for all those years, people, people to catch on to that light on, and it's now happening. And now you got one of the biggest spark plugs, catalysts that's driving it, COVID-19. COVID-19 is for, for everything that we can look at. Yes, it's bad. We, we get it. But something good is emerging out of it. And what's emerging out of it is that Americans are investing in American-based companies every single day. In fact, the numbers prove that year over year, this is over 100% plus of our online investing for Reg CF, Reg A+, all of that. What is that telling you? Is that people are now adapting to it much faster. The average, you know, investment was maybe a hundred dollars at one time. Now it's over a thousand. So, you know, it, so it's not stopping. It's actually accelerating the traditional capital raising me sitting in front of JP, having a coffee, doing a presentation. Okay. Those have come to a halt right now. Yes. But the online side, absolutely not. And the irony is, is that it's not just the non-accredited or the retail investor as people call it's every investor is moving online because it is easy it's comfortable and you can instantly see all the information the more reason why companies need to revisit their approach and the management of all of this hence the reason why we exist it's now become important because there's now enough examples to show them what we've been saying has been this is the path that it's going to undertake so you know, I'm, it's, it, I don't meant it to be in a cruel way, but COVID-19 has become the catalyst that this industry needed for our private capital markets to go like this. And this is where we are right now. We're moving, we're moving that needle closer and closer to get there. You're obviously an expert in crowdfunding. Tell us something else we need to know about crowdfunding. And also, where is its place today in the capital markets? So when crowdfunding first emerged as a term, Really, as you probably saw, it was very received very negatively by the capital markets participants, meaning the broker dealer community, legal. There, there was a lot of, uh, you know, there'll be a lot of fraud and this and that. Um, and, and, and what people need to understand is that every one of us do crowdfunding. So let me give it to everyone in specific numbers. So it's very clear. There is 152,000 plus companies every single year in the United States that raise capital. Yes, that many. Out of that, only 1,200 or 1,500 are venture back. Those companies are not crowdfunding. Let's be very clear. They're, they're raising their capital through venture capital. The rest of you, everybody's crowdfunding. What is crowdfunding? Crowdfunding is reaching out to somebody you don't know and letting them know your opportunity. Crowdfunding has been seen, wow, you know, it's online where people can see it. That is a choice. That is not crowdfunding. That is a, a choice in the exemption that allows you to sell it. So to me, any form of capital raising is crowdfunding. Why is crowdfunding becoming so important today? Because for the very first time, it is the only exemptions, the only form that people can raise money in. So in the United States, we got Regulation CF where companies can raise up to a million dollars through these online platforms. At the same time, you can use another regulation called Regulation A+, 
where you can raise up to $50 million on your website, fully regulated, fully qualified, again, from the crowd. So there are, those are both called equity crowdfunding. And you can also do a Reg D 506C, which is, again, the accredited investor. And again, you can crowdfund that and you can raise that through a broker dealer or on your own. So to me, crowdfunding is everything unless you're that special, you know, 1,200, 1,500 companies. The vast majority of us, 98, 99%, we raise money by crowdfunding. Um, this, again, the stigma, knock on wood, crowdfunding has opened it up. If it wasn't for crowdfunding, the fact that people build, on, build tools to allow an investor to go through an investment process from A to Z, meaning entering their details, going through a KYC process, ID, AML, investor verification, sign the subscription agreement, and make the payment online, the entire capital markets in the United States will come to a raging halt. Because that's exactly what's happened with those who do not have those tools. So today, everybody's rushing in to get them. So mark my words, in 2021, everybody will be doing online investing. So the terminology that's changing, you hear words like online investing. I'm not really doing crowdfunding. I'm doing equity crowdfunding. Again, you're going out to the crowd, whether that's an accredited crowd or non-accredited and bringing it in. And, but it's, it is one of the most amazing forms of capital raising. It has gone from nothing when it first got introduced to over 2,700 companies just in regulation CF that have used it successfully to raise capital from the general public. And so that it's showing you progress. It's creating jobs, which is part of the Jobs Act. Regulation A is another exemption where companies are able to raise capital up to 50 million. And some have even used it three years in a row. I mean, I have clients that have gone not the first year, the second and the third. So the regulation is favorable even to the companies themselves because it allows them always imagine being able to go to your customers and have them invest in your company. I mean, that's, that, that's the golden goose that everybody looks forward to. We now have a way of doing it. There, it's one thing to have a platform. It's one thing to have a methodology for raising. I want to talk about how companies attract the investors in just a moment. But if you're listening to or watching this episode of The Deal Flow Show, you can get access to our archives as well as subscribe and follow us to get access to our future episodes at The Deal Flow Show. Dot com. And uh, we've got a great guest with, with us. Oscar, I uh, want to shift a little bit because you've been talking a lot about the platforms and the regulations and the rules. And the average entrepreneur that's sitting out there that's looking to raise money or currently raising money obviously is asking the question, uh, how does someone continue for three years straight to con you know keep attracting investors through, let's say, a Reg A+. Where are the investors coming from? Because when... Reggae first started, my understanding of it was that it worked really well for someone who already had an audience. Maybe they had a big consumer brand um, with a lot of people that, as you said, emotionally bought in to the brand and therefore now I want a little piece of it and say that I'm an owner in this business, I own a piece of equity in the company. But where do companies today attract the investors that invest through programs like a Reggae Plus? That's, that's a great question. It, it, it's a great lead to it. So 
the the industry has created a a segment that hadn't existed years before. Uh, these are companies that provide investor acquisition tactics. So there are a number of ways where uh, and and tactics that you can employ to bring awareness into your opportunity. Um, that could be newsletters, finding financial newsletters or family office newsletters, high net worth, advertising, emails, uh, advertising on television, ads, and so on. So there's a number of techniques, including webinars, to bring awareness. The original thought of reggae was, yes, there are some people say, look, Oscar, the only type of companies that can come into this space, they need to be retail-based and they need to you know, have an established brand. I can give you examples, companies like BioLife 4D. They're, they're not a retail, they're, they're a B2B biotech company and they're doing it. Everybody's got an audience. Everybody in the world's got an audience. The key is, can you resonate your language, your message to everybody so they understand what you're doing? I have another company called Quadrant Biosciences, building an autism. So it, it doesn't matter if it's manufacturing homes uh, like Boxable um, to companies who are doing cannabis. People go, cannabis is so easy. It's not. It's no longer easy. Why? Because the spectrum is from A to Z. All we tell people is that our companies that come to us for assistance in reggae is you need a team. And no matter whether you got one follower or a thousand or three thousand, sure, it'll make it easier. Messaging, messaging, and messaging using the right tactics to bring the attention to you, to your site, so people can click the invest button and make the desirable investment in your company. You still have to be a viable business that everybody likes and, and understands, but we are far away from the, the spectrum that it's only be this. Um, B2C uh, companies. Now it's pure, you know, B2C, B2B, everything in between. And it's exciting because the, we're now see the, the, the successes and the failures. So every entrepreneur right now is thinking, yeah, Oscar, I want to do a reggae, but so what makes a success? What makes a, a failure? The success is when you play with a team. So keep this in mind. So when you are doing this kind of regulation, you got a lawyer, you got a broker dealer, escrow provider, you've got the company that provides you the investment, you got the transfer agent, you got your investor acquisition, IR, PR. It's a team. All of us are going to work together with you to be successful. So that's success. And those are companies that can raise, you know, 15 up to 50 million and they do it. We've seen it. And then there are those who say, you know what? I'm just going to do it by myself. Okay. The regulation provided you that mechanism to do so. But at the same time, you're doing it by yourself. So who is helping you bring in that audience? So I've met companies that after two years, they've only raised like $50,000, $75,000. And the answer is really simple. As long as you want to play alone, you're on the internet. You're a needle in a haystack. You, you have to understand that in order for people to find you, you have to work with a community and you have to bring awareness. So those are the two sides of any capital raising, whether it is done online or offline. But in online, it's even more so that you've got to work with a whole bunch of individuals. So it does cost money, but your return is far cheaper than you going from city to city doing you know, presentations in Chicago, Boston, New York, LA, San Francisco, and then you come back home to the, oh yeah, I, made, I did 25 meetings, and what did you get? 
Here you can do a thousand meetings at the same time, all online, talking to investors worldwide and taking small offers of $100. What are you suggesting that a company set aside as a budget for a successful Reg A plus raise? So Reg A, we, we actually provide this to companies that are suggested by this. So you're looking in the legals between 50 to 60,000, your regulatory filings, $5,000, your investor acquisition companies uh, initially will be about twenty-five thousand, but you'll spend anywhere between twenty-five to two hundred thousand or more. Of the the next uh, item that you got to pay for is your broker dealer. They'll charge you a one percent fee to do on all the compliance on the back end, um, and then you need the transfer agent, which is what our platform is providing, and the invest button, and we charge you a monthly fee of nine hundred fifty dollars. So we so what is that all total up? So we tell people 250,000, you're ready to do a reggae. So what are mostly companies doing? They go, whoa, wasn't ready for that. They're using Reg CF. So they use a Reg CF that allows them to raise up to a million dollars. So you see a lot of this. So we got clients like Zitty Zenith, Boxable that went in there, raised a million dollars. And while they're doing that, they're already applying to do a reggae. So it's, it's an amazing when you start combining the regulations to assist you to grow your company. Okay, so I'm going to push you a little bit further down the board then. A CF, what kind of a budget does one need to look at coming into that? So CF is a little different because you're not in, you're not in control as much as you think you are. Why? Because in order to raise the capital, you could only raise it in the uh, uh, FINRA-approved platforms like Republic, WeFunder. So you go to these platforms, you apply. So there's a small legal fee for the Form C. So you need audited uh, information, uh, sorry, non-audit, but you do need an account. So you're looking at between fifteen dollars to $20,000 to get started to doing a Reg CF. So there is a cost associated with it. And plus, the platform will take a fee as well. They'll charge between 7 to 9% on the fees. Some of the platforms do take the half of that uh, fee in, in uh, equity in your company, the same equity as the everybody else, and while others take it on 100%. The whole idea of Reg CF is that, you know, for anybody listening here, if you're saying to yourself right now, I need 150,000, that's all I need. When you're going to Reg CF, you're not raising 150, you're probably gonna have to raise 250,000 or a little bit more. You have to count in, the amount of time that you're going to spend with the legals and accounting and the filing with the SEC. And then you're going to do a little bit of marketing, not too much. There are more restrictions in Reg CF, how you can market, where in Reg A, you're all on. I mean, you can do so many things and you can bring all that traffic to your website. Um, but again, you're being limited to a million dollars. And, um, you know, it, it, it's a great for a company that is needing the capital and has a very small budget to get to. We've seen companies do it, very small budget, but very smart in their deployment of their uh, marketing uh, tactics. Wow, uh, it's good, great stuff. Yeah. Uh, Oscar, your, your knowledge, your experience is, it seems very vast. To that point, you've written a couple books. Can you tell us about those books and where we can find them? Yes, so when Equity Crowdfunding was first coming out, I, I released Equity Crowdfunding 101 which is available in English, Mandarin, and Spanish. Um, 30 million copies have been downloaded. It's a free book. 
So it's the ABCs of equity crowdfunding. To this day, it's still the same formula. Um, my second book is called Digital Securities 101. So basically, we're now in an era where we're talking about what we heard back then was, this is great. You're allowing private investors to come in. That's great. You're going to lock them up for 30 years. <laughs> so that's what you hear. Well, with Reg A, what people don't realize, there is no lockup period. The investor has a free trading security. So now we're moving into the direction of digitizing these securities to be able to make it more cost effective for them to be able to sell them in the open market. And I'm not talking about public markets. I'm talking about registered secondary market ATSs, which are for privately held companies only, um, which will allow you know, small investors to be able to trade between themselves, um, sell their shares, sorry, and then be able to transact in a cost-effective manner. So all of this is the new digital frontier that we're moving into. So to get my books, they're really simple. You can go to our site, www.coreconnects.com, and you can register in the platform, and the books are free downloadable uh, inside. Okay, so you said something that is is actually very interesting. What you're saying is there are platforms being developed now or have launched there's secondary markets for privately held securities that, like a Reg A, because, you know, some Reg A's have actually listed, right? So they've used that as a, as a mechanism to go public. But you're saying that a Reg A raise can, a company could remain private, but provide some liquidity or an exit for those that are holding those privately held shares. I'm, I'm curious to understand a little bit more about that. Can you explain the platforms and how that process works or what the development is in that area right now? Sure. So the, the private world, I mean, today more and more companies are staying private. We're, we're not going public, none of us. And if we do, we're going public prematurely. I think the early entrance in Reg A, that was one of the mistakes. That's why the, the reason why Reg A got kind of tainted a little bit. They were, you know, not going to go into the regulatory issues, but it, they, they shouldn't have gone public. All my clients today in Reg A, Reg CF, and Reg D are staying private. So that's great. That's a great decision by a company. I want to build it. We have a different exit or we'll go public at a later time when we're bigger. And the regulations allow that to keep raising money. But again, the shareholder needs to sell. For whatever reason, they need liquidity. So we, there's been a lot of talk of liquidity for the last two, three years. The emergence of blockchain has really sparked this up tremendously. Look at that. Using this technology, we can start being able to trade more efficiently and cost effectively. So the question is, why has it taken so long to get that dream come true? Because even though you can build a, a technology, techno technology does not replace securities law. It doesn't replace the regulators, the oversight parties. So I am happy to say that in less than 14, 15 days, the very first um, secondary market registered FINRA broker dealer, it took them almost three years to get approved, uh, which is under our infrastructure, will allow uh, trading of Reg A shares, Reg CF shares, and Reg D shares of individual investors. This is a game changer. So people will watch so game changer because up until now, the only trades we've seen in secondary are half a million dollars or more. That's great. That's not the average person. 
This is going to do a hundred dollar trade. That's the everyday person. That's a, for them to go from. They can scale up. It's big difference. The other ones could never scale down. So this is a very exciting time for the industry. Um, we are announcing this at the upcoming core summit. Uh, we're big advocates in education. Everything I believe in, everything about CoreConnects is we educate everyone. We educate the ecosystem. We educate the investors. What we end up having are people who understand how it all works. They understand who all the players are. Nobody is playing in you know, some shaded background. So the core summit we have on October the 7th is an educational event for reggae. We have Commissioner Hester Peirce speaking. Um, we have the top lawyers who have done reggae. The, we have the top broker dealers who have done reggae, the investor acquisition, the A to Z of reggae, all of it around education. And during that, we will be showcasing the secondary market for regulation A. Um, which is going to change the market dramatically for everyone for the very first time to be able to do that. And again, it, it took them almost, like I said, three years to get approved. So it's not an easy undertaking. Not everybody is going to get that license, but it's, it's showing the path. They will be the first and there will be others. And um, I'm extremely thrilled by this because, you know, most companies like me, we're, 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 we're going to use the regulation. We're going to get 30,000 investors. A small base has to sell for whatever reason, but that's not a reflection of all of them. I, you know, not every shareholder wants to sell. They understand their journey. They're in it for the long run. But if those need to sell, there should be every opportunity for them to be able to do so in a more efficient, cost-effective way that it doesn't affect the company, meaning you know, the traditional way is, I need to call the CEO. I need to confirm that you know JP owns the shares, that he there are no liens and it can trade and and all that, and then to be able to then see if the company is real. All these things, which take months and months, now it's in seconds. <laughs> the the secondary market doesn't even need to know uh, contact the company and disrupt you. In fact, the company's cap table is automatically updated real time. Um, because the transaction is happening at a registered ATS Finder broker dealer, which is then connected to the transfer agent and all this. So it's a win-win. And all of this is operating under a, a, an infrastructure that allows people that ability to do that. And that's how you bring real change. You bring the participants who have the licenses and bring them together. And then you educate the market on what's possible. And we're finally there. That is good that's stuff. That's extraordinary <laughs> stuff. I mean, that, that deserves a clap. That's good stuff. This is good. Yeah, you said game changer. And I, I think it's going to be huge. I can't wait to see the development. And we certainly want to talk about some of the companies that we're familiar with that would make a lot of sense. Right. So is it the individual shareholders that will go in and list? Um, they'll open an account and list shares that they have for sale. Is that how this is going to play out? Yeah, that's right. So basically, the process will be every company that is a Reg A, private company only, of course, not public, private company that wants to list on this secondary market. Um, one of the first step is they will be onboarded to our platform uh, to be able to uh, have all of the information. The ATS will have instant access uh, to the shareholder base because they need to be able to see who their holders are and all the data. 
Um, and that's all done through an infrastructure we've created between the two companies. The first step is obviously the company has to apply to the platform, the registered ATS. But if you're a Reg A and you've done obviously a filing, for them to do their due diligence, it's like 24, 48 hours and it's done. The beauty of Reg A is that the registered ATS only has to do so much work because all that information has been filed with the SEC. So, and all the shareholders, we already know they've been vetted in because there was a broker dealer doing the KYC. So this is, again, it's a fully regulated, um, fully compliant, but again, giving everyday people the opportunity to, if they want it, there it is. And they'll be able to just click a button, go there, open an account, indicate that they want to sell these securities. It's like a bid and ask. And, you know, the, the, to me, it's, I've been waiting for this for, you know, four or five years. I've been hearing about it. I've partnered with companies who said, oh, yeah, Oscar, we're coming with it. And I go, are you sure? Yeah, yeah, bring me the clients. And we would bring them to them. They're ready to go. And then they go, well, we need companies that can trade minimum half a million dollars. I go, so guys, so this is institutional trading. It's not, it's not every day. Institutional trading, we've always had. The fact that you put it on digital, okay, that's great. You made it efficient for them. But when you get it down to $100, you got a winner. And this is the one. This is the, this is the one that we've been waiting for a long time. And I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm very pumped. I mean, October 7th is going to be a really big day for all of us. And in particular now, because of COVID-19, more and more companies are pivoting their, their strategy on capital raising. So most of my day is spent with companies, Oscar, I'm doing a Reg D, and my lawyer says I should talk to you because I'm struggling selling my securities. And what am I doing? And I go, look, I, it's not that you're struggling. It's just that right now you're trying to reach an audience that typically you would meet face-to-face. -face. So try to imagine for yourself, would you write a $150,000 check just somebody you met on the internet? And, and so unless you've got a close relationship with them, it's very difficult. So, but that same person, ironically enough, is investing $1,000, $5,000 in multiple companies and hasn't met any of those companies at all. So, so it's, you, you need to pivot your raise from, you know, the accredited, which they go, I, I want to keep my float small. I get it. I understand that. But this is what's the coin. And if COVID-19 is going to be here, I heard numbers that we're looking at third quarter 2021, right? Before we can start grouping events and all that. That means how are you going to survive? How are you going to make it if you can't sell your securities? So I think it's really important for people to recognize that it's, it's now the norm. And I firmly believe that even post-COVID-19, Everybody will prefer it this way because they'll see how efficient it is. Look at that. My investors go online. I put an offering there. They see it. And broker dealers who are doing that now, moving that direction, they're going to do extremely well. Companies who can pivot themselves from, oh, yeah, I only did accredited. Now I'm doing reggae. They're going to, like real estate. Real estate has always been, you know, a credit investor. Now they're moving into retail. And they're like, you know what? It's... The numbers are bigger, but at least we're getting our capital raise completed and we're getting the valuations that we want to keep in our company.
Very interesting. If you're watching or listening to this episode of the Dill Flow Show, you can get access to our archives as well as get access to future episodes. Follow us and subscribe by going to the Dill Flow Show. Dot com. We have Oscar Joffrey on with Corkinex, and um, this has been actually very exciting. I just looked down at the time, and we're coming up on the end of our time together. I would really like to think about having you come back on, uh, for, certainly for yes. season two, but as we do some specialized programs where we're diving into different things, we're going to be doing one on SPACs. We're also very likely going to be doing one on reggae. And uh, have you come in as a panelist on a special program like that and help educate our audience. I really appreciate you being on the show. Um, before we go, tell folks other than maybe the website or phone number, email, what would be the best way for them to reach out to you? And what are the kind of people that you'd like to hear from in our audience or even the network that we've built through the Deal Flow Show and professionally? Yeah, thank you for that opportunity. So to find me, it's really simple. I'm on LinkedIn and Twitter. Oscar Joffrey. So it's, I'm very easy to find. I'm on Wikipedia. Um, as far as who we like to hear from, so here is the audience we currently have. We have over 120,000 companies in our platform, and they range from companies that raise $10,000, companies that raise $2.5 We have companies with one shareholder, and we have companies with 274,000 shareholders and counting. Everything in between. I don't discriminate. We don't discriminate. We operate in US, Canada, UK, India, Australia, New Zealand, Singapore, and UAE. We're a global company today, um, and we have partners, 700 partners worldwide. We believe in working with everyone. And one of the one promises that I make to all the entrepreneurs out there is when you come into CoreConnects and our ecosystem, you have our word and you have our charter and our governance standard. We have no financial relationships with any of our partners, which means that when we give you guidance to go and talk to somebody, we are never financially motivated. We're only motivated to make sure that you can execute. That's the only thing that matters because if you're not able to execute, we're just wasting your time. So everybody in our ecosystem has great trust with us. We've grown from three partners in 2018 to where we are now, and all of it has been built on trust. Everything we do is we're creating this massive global ecosystem so we can start removing the barriers that companies have to go through when they, they raise money. Very good. That's great. Um, Oscar, it's wonderful to hear that platform. When that platform goes live, we have to have him back on. This is incredible stuff, really groundbreaking, and, and kudos to you. Really, it sounds wonderful. Tell us a little something about yourself that otherwise people wouldn't know. Um, well, I'm an immigrant. Uh, I'm a Canadian uh, citizen, of course. Uh, I, I go back between U.S. and Canada, but obviously with COVID-19, I've been blessed in being at home. I'm very fortunate. I have three beautiful children, three beautiful boys that are part of my life. Um, my journey and to all of this and to everyone is that I love giving back. I really, truly do. It's uh, I get criticized a lot uh, sometimes from our shareholders that I give away the farm, um, but I know what it's like to be an entrepreneur. I really do. I, um, so it's the one part that um, I try to make sure that we always um, try to uh, bring to everybody's attention is that 
um, you know, a part of me feels that it's difficult to do certain things. So um, I like, uh, I want to make sure that everybody has a chance and I get great gratification when I see companies who raise $10,000. Trust me, I get excited about that. As weird as it sounds, I do because I love what they're doing. And I see that that $10,000 made all the change they needed in order to get their spark going. And, you know, the companies that raised a billion or half a million, that's it. That's fantastic. I love them too. I, don't get me wrong. But it just, to me, it's just, uh, uh, I know what it's like to be an entrepreneur and I, I'm enjoying it. So uh, Oscar as an open book. <laughs> hey, Oscar, Wonderful. I appreciate that. That is good. Excellent. And it's it's very congruent with the way I feel. I know our team probably gets tired of hearing me say it, but I believe it. I live it. The more you give, the more you get. But you got to give, give, give before you get, get, get. That's law. And you certainly are living that. Living proof personally, but also living proof in your business. We really appreciate you being on the show. Again, if you're watching or listening to this episode of The Deal Flow Show, check us out at thedealflowshow.com. Follow us. Subscribe. And if you think you'd be a good guest or know a good guest, please reach out to us. We'll see you in another show very, very soon. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye. For more episodes, visit thedealflowshow.com and subscribe. 